0: Um, who both teaches um, on the undergraduate level, but also s- spends significant time sitting in the base medrash, answering halachic questions, giving advice to students. I'm um, sorry, Shai Schechter, um, who, who also is the rabbi and Rosh B. Midrash um, at uh, Young Israel of Woodmere. Um, we are incredibly, incredibly privileged to have him on, on faculty, and our students uh, gain so much, both in the learning from him in the classroom, but also outside the classroom, okay? having the opportunity um, every single week to just spend time with him, um, to schmooze about you know more life topics, halachic questions, without further ado, with Shai Schechter. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon, I guess. At this point, it looks like it's been a very, very meaningful day for everyone here. And I'm sorry I had to come late this morning and miss the beginning of that wonderful panel. Uh, I thank all of those who are involved in putting together this very meaningful experience for all of us as we sit here and try to bring ourselves back to what the Jewish people are really all about. We all lead very busy lives. We all have many different commitments, many responsibilities, many obligations, and at times it makes us very fragmented. So we turn to Parshas Vayethi. We have an understanding that every aspect of Torah is there for a particular reason. We understand that every word in the Torah, every letter in the Torah, every space, every larger letter, every smaller letter, and in fact, every non-space is there or not there for a particular reason. So at the very beginning of Parshas Vayethi, Rashi points out, that there is something very unusual, very uncharacteristic about Parshas Vayethi. Whereas by every Parsha we have some kind of space, some kind of demarcation to let us know that there's a new story that is beginning. When it comes to Parshas Vayethi, it is almost as if it's a run-on sentence. And that is a question that bothers Rashi. Why is it that there is no space? Lama Parsha Utsuma. Why is this Parsha in particular closed off? Why is there no demarcation, no obvious reference to the fact that that we are now beginning a new parsha, and Rashi explains that this is really symbolic. The understanding of this is because the fishenistemu enehem shal Yisrael hashibud. And parshas VaYechi is when we learn about the terrible destruction of the Jewish people as they were going through that horrific time in Jewish history, as they were going through the exile in Egypt, and as that was unfolding, because of the terrible pressure that they had, because of the amount of work that they needed to do. There was no space for people to think. There was no space for them to feel, no space for them to think. People were just constricted, they were confined, they were focused on themselves. As uh, Mrs. Besser said so beautifully before, that was an amazing. I, I only made it for the end, and Chabal, I missed the beginning, but that was an unbelievable shot. The metaphor of the Navi Chagai, as he describes, being locked into one's home, and a person feels that they are going through something very difficult, sometimes it makes them become more and more insular. They don't want to be out there. And Rashi says, as a result of what it is that they experienced, nistimu e neem velibam, everyone became closed, they were callous, they were unable to be able to... They were unable to appreciate the feelings of others, they were unable to understand what people were going through, they could not see as they normally or otherwise would have. And perhaps what is most special about having a morning like this... We're living through a very overwhelming time in Jewish history. For those who survived the Holocaust, they see this as a continuation, perhaps, of what it is that many may have lived through. I don't know how many Holocaust survivors we have in here, but for anyone that is in my generation, or for anyone the generation above me, we've had a pretty amazing life. We've had an unbelievable experience in ghosts. And that is why this is so complicated and so difficult for us, because... It's not the reality of Jewish history that we are used to. Jewish history is very used to this kind of reality, but it's not what we are used to in our experience. And sometimes, as a result of being completely consumed by what it is that's going on, I don't know how many of you wake up in the morning and just scroll endlessly to see what happened overnight. Not just one website. We have to look at five or ten websites. Not just one WhatsApp chat. We have to look at a million WhatsApp chats. We have to know everything that's going on. And sometimes as a result of the overload of information and everything that's going on, we don't have an opportunity to see the bigger picture, to understand what it is that's really going on, to feel nis t'moyne and We're so overwhelmed by all that's happening that we may not be focusing on the individuals that are involved in these stories, on the people that need our attention, on the individuals that can use our chizik, that can use our help. And taking a morning like this to stop everything else that we're doing, and to bring ourselves back to the roots, to close all the other commitments that we may have had, to take ourselves away from the monotony of life sometimes, and to just put ourselves in a position where we can think, where we can feel, where we can come together as a community and understand together and have a sensitivity that's going to be shared by all of us is something that I think is very, very special and very helpful, very helpful at a time like this. I know that the panel before spoke about how does the Torah sustain us during difficult times? I think the question is a beautiful question, but in all honesty, the Torah is the only thing that can and will sustain us in difficult times. And there were very beautiful illustrations that were given in the panel before, but just to think ado, to think in the bigger picture, the Torah is the only thing that has made the Jewish people survive. The Torah is the only thing that we rest upon the Torah is what we stand with very proudly and very strong here on our campus, but in Jewish communities all over the world. Those are the Jewish communities that have survived, that have thrived, that are growing, that are continuing to prosper, that are continuing to have children who are carrying on the legacy of everything that the Jewish people represent. We're proud to be a part of it, and we're proud to be trying to educate the generation of young women who are going to do the very same for their children, for their students, and for all those who are going to come after us as well. And that's why it is such a pride for all of us teachers here at Stern College who have the opportunity to be a part of that lasting, everlasting legacy that the Jewish people stand for, especially at times like this. I think it is no secret that this campus has given a tremendous amount of focus to all that's going on in Israel. Our students are very well aware of all that's happening. They are appreciating, they are sensitive, they are understanding, just look here. Every day when I walk into the base Medrash, you see on the walls, you see it downstairs, you see it. Many of the students are wearing things on their shirts, on their, uh, on their clothing to remind them of everything that's going on. And it's important for us because that is an important value that we stand for. Being together with Eretz Yisrael, Rashi says in the very first Hasuk in Chumash, And Rashi asks, why is it that the Torah begins with the story of the creation of the world if after all... There is no relevance. I don't know about you, but I have no plans on creating my own world. So I don't really need God's rule book. I don't really need God's instructions to teach me how to do so. So why is it that the Torah begins with something that seems to be almost irrelevant? There is nothing really to learn from it. This is not an instruction to the Jewish people. Why do we have the story of HaRash's Barah Elohim in the beginning of Chumash? Why do we start with that? And Rashi says, because the Rebona Shalom needed to lay down the law. Not only for us, but for everyone in the world to understand. I, God, created the world, and as a result of that, I have the right to decide who gets which portion of the world. The Jewish people are entitled to have a connection with the land of Eretz Yisrael because I, Baruch who decided that it should be so. The Rebona Shalom is the one who created our world. He is the one who gave us Eretz Yisrael. Koath ma'isa sabhigin, says Rashi. And it is important for us. That is the foundation of everything we stand for. It is not only a message for the Umas HaOlam, for the nations of the world. We need to realize it's a message for us as well. The Rebona Shalom is telling us be proud. You have a right to the land. And whatever all the nations of the world may say, you have a right to the land and be proud of that connection. Be proud of that affiliation. Understand what it means for you. Internalize the message of what Eretz Yisrael can be in your life. I don't want to talk about depressing things this morning. I know that some of the conversation was centered around how do we deal with difficult times? Let's think a little bit ahead. Let's go one step ahead of the difficult time and think about what I hope is on all of our minds, Gula. Let's think a little bit about redemption. We hope and we pray for redemption every day. And we have a tremendous focus in our tefillah for coming back there for having a redemption.. <laughs> Re'eva Those are just in the Shemona Ezra but we can come up with so many other phrases and examples throughout the Tefillah when we focus on that. So let's go all the way back to the original story of Ula. Let's go back to the original story of redemption. Why were we doing that? Not only because in some way it can inform our understanding of G'ula today, but also because we know that we are now in the midst of Chodesh Adar Rishon. Now you have to ask yourself, we are going to observe Purim in Adar Sheni, and the Gemara wonders: We always have a concept of zrizim akdim on the mitzvahs, which means the first opportunity that we have to observe a mitzvah, we grab that opportunity. So why, if we all have a mitzvah, men and women alike share in the mitzvah of Mikra Megillah, men and women alike share in the mitzvah of Matanos Levion, Slavionah, Mishloach Manos, all the different mitzvahs on Purim? Why would we push this to the second month of Adar instead of doing it at the first? available opportunity, which is Adar HaRisho? That's the question that the Gemara raises. And the Gemara answers because, although it's true, Zrizim Akadim and and although it's true, we always want to do things in the earliest possible time, this would be an exception because we have a counter-focus here. Because we want to be Masmech the Guula. There is a relationship between Purim and Pesach. Those are two great stories in our history about the redemption of the Jewish people, and we want to talk a little bit about those two great processes. We want to talk a little bit about those two great stories and everything that they represent. So what I want to point out here is one similarity that we have between the Geulah of Mitzrayim and the Geulah of the Days of Mordechai and Esther, which is relevant to our hopeful Geulah today as well. We know that so much of our religion is based on Zechah the Mitzrayim we are incessantly talking about Zechel Yetzias Mitzrayim. Every day, Kriya shema in the morning, Kriya shema in the evening, we talk about ECS Mitzrayim. We know that Shabbos is Zechel HaMaisa but also Zechel Mitzrayim. You can't get away from Yetzias Mitzrayim. Every return, the mezuzah, everything has Yetzias Mitzrayim. What is this focus on ECS Mitzrayim? Of course, there can be a thousand answers to that question. But let's just take two. Let's extract two. number one, I've always been touched by the Medrash on the occasion of Kriya Siyamstov. The Medrash writes, imagine the scene for a moment. You have the entire Jewish people walking through the dry land. Says the Medrash, two individuals are walking through together and they're having a conversation, casual conversation. Ruvay turns to Shimon, not to Shvater. Mr. Ruvay turns to Mr. Shimon, or Mrs. Leah turns to Mrs. Uh, Rachel." And says, You know, do you see how much mud is on the bottom of my pants? <laughs> and the vendor describes this conversation between these two individuals as they're walking through the yams. I think about that vendor so often because you can be living through the most extraordinary experience of your life. You can be living through the greatest experience that a human being has ever seen. And instead of seeing the bigger picture of what it is that's in front of you, the only thing you can notice is the mud on the bottom of your pants. How sad. How sad, how tragic, how unfortunate. But how many of us do the same thing? We're living through a time where there's so many different things to focus on. Don't focus on the mud on the bottom of your pants. Think about the big picture of all that we're living through, of all that we aspire toward, of all that we look forward to, of all that the Jewish people have rose to the occasion now, have shown what we are. Be proud of what we are and what we represent. Don't focus on the mud on the bottom of our pants, even if it's there. That's not the focus. The focus is on the Kriyas Yamsuf, The focus is on the big moment, on the big experience. That's number one, what I think about when we consider Zechari the mitzrayim But number two, you'll notice, when we talk about Yitzhi there is a theme that is somewhat recurrent, over and over again. Why do we eat matzah on Pesach? So we all know why we eat matzah on Pesach, because we say, nah ha-seder. The reason why is because hispik because there wasn't enough time for the dough to rise. Now I ask you, how many years were the Jewish people in Egypt? A couple of hundred years. Terrible oppression. Terrible. Horrible experience. What would have happened if they waited an extra 20 minutes to allow the dough to rise? At this point, nobody was being oppressed. Everyone was basically free. They see in front of their own eyes, the Egyptians, the firstborns, are dead. So, Moshe, can you give us another couple of minutes? I haven't eaten a normal meal in a couple of hundred years can you just give me a few minutes and let my dough rise, allow me to have something that I enjoy eating? Moshe Levin says no. And if that wasn't enough, we know that everyone had to sit and eat the karma Pesach, Halel HaSeder, that first night, that first Pesach, and we were told, masnechem Chagurim, Na'aleichem lechem. you have to have your shoes on, you have to have your walking stick, you got to have your coat ready, everybody has to be eating in a hurry, in a rush. Everything had to be done with such immediacy. What was that about? What's this chih-puzzle? Why is everybody in such a rush? You've been here for a long time, so stay a little bit longer, and everything will be fine. Not only that, the Rambam writes in one place, when he's talking about character development. So the Rambam says, there are certain behaviors that we know are just negative character traits. Some of them are inherent negative character traits, And some of them are just not productive. To live life this way is not productive. So says the Rambam in one place, in Hilchus Aegis. He describes, People who live all of life with hysteria, with panic, with frenzy. They're always rushing. Says the Rambam, I would never say, but the Rambam says, It's a very unintelligent way to live life. You end up making mistakes. You're not thought out. You're not being methodical. You're not carefully deciding what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. it. Says the Rambam, "This is not a smart way to live life. That's a very unintelligent way to live life." So you ask yourself, if the Rambam tells us, and the Arfa ha'Sadikim, and all of the farm that talk about character development tell us this is really not the way to live life, then why is it when it came to Mitzrayim everything had to be just so? Why did I have to eat the carbon paste up in that way? Why did I have to rush out of Mitzrayim with my bread that wasn't even baked yet? Why couldn't I give myself a few minutes? Why was everyone in such a frenzy? What was the reason for that? In case you think that's coincidental, the maharal points out, look at the Purim story. Sometimes we have the mistaken impression when we read the Megillah on Purim night, you think the Megillah happened in 25 minutes. But it really didn't. Chazal tell us this was a span of 11 or 12 years. So when you read the story in retrospect, You say, oh, this makes sense, and then this turned to that, and then this event led to the next event. All of it actually makes sense to us. But when you were living through it, 12 years of a horrible existence, 12 years of not knowing where the end will be, or where this is leading us, it's not so simple. It's a very painful story. So you read the Megillah. 12 years of terrible oppression against the Jewish people. You have Esther Hamalbe, just envision to yourself for a moment. The end of the story is great. But imagine for a moment Esther is taken away from her community. We are told in the Megillah that all the women went for skin treatments. Everybody wanted to make themselves look beautiful for Ahasuerus. It would be any woman's dream to be the queen, except for Esther. That's the reason that she denied the opportunity for herself to have these treatments. I don't want to be chosen. This is not the life I want. Imagine this girl goes to a Jewish day school. <coughs> then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, is plucked out. She's married to the gadol hadar, by the way. She's married to the leader of the Jewish community. She's taken out against her wishes. She is assaulted. She is abused. She's in a marriage she doesn't want to be a part of. This is a good story. So there's a terrible story unfolding in the days of Mordechai and Esther. And then all of a sudden, a all of a sudden, everything turns on its head and everything changes very unexpectedly. And what happens then? Writes the Maharal, you look at the Pesukim in the Megillah and what are we told? kachas Quickly! Don't waste any time. Immediately, go get the horse and go get the clothing and make sure you get Mordechai and immediately, everything has to be done so fast. Vayomer es haman The king says, quickly, go get haman. Why? Why quickly? Is that the way kings do things? This is not the way that we act. What would happen if instead of having the victory parade with Mordechai today, he would have it tomorrow? What would be the problem? The decree is over. Achashverosh lets out the word. The Jewish people are no longer in danger. Okay, so we'll have the victory march for Mordechai tomorrow. What is the big concern, says the Ma'aral? Why is it that we have this notion of puzzle? both by the story of Mordecai and Esther, as well as in the story of Yitzias Mitzrayim, which we know and are familiar with. Explains the matter all, the answer is because anybody here ever did construction on their house? I assume, little construction, big construction, how long did it take you to do it? Longer than expected. expected. How about this? How long did it take you from the time you decided, we're going to do this, until it actually started? It's not just that the construction takes forever. It's, I need to draw up the plans, I need to get a variance, I need to figure out if it really makes sense. Can I afford this, can I not? What am I gonna put in? What am I gonna leave out? How much am I gonna make the extension? Maybe it's not worth it. My children are already getting older, then they're gonna get married, they're not gonna live in my house anymore, then I'm gonna visit them. They should be making the guest rooms, I should be. How many, how many different considerations do you keep in mind until you actually come up with the plan? By the time you're done with the plan, you don't even need the construction anymore. What is that all about? Why does it take so long? The answer is because we are human beings. When we have something that we want to do, we have to go through different stages to make it happen. So I look at some of my students here, and some of them are very ambitious. And they want to go to medical school and ask them, what would you like to do in medical school? Not just, I want to be an internist. I want to be a specialist, and I want to go for neurosurgery. Hey, do you understand the road ahead of you till you get to that point? Do you know how many years that's going to be? I don't discourage them, I'm excited about it. And when you start talking about it, you realize I first have to take my prerequisites in college. Then I need to make sure I do well on all my labs and do everything that's gonna get me to the place where I can have a possibility of applying for medical school. Then I have to study for my MCATs. There are a lot of things that need to happen before I become a doctor. Not just before I become a doctor, Before I become a specialist, even more things need to happen. We live in a certain reality where we have to be working in stages, where we have to formulate a plan. You can't just show up one day at the medical school and say, I'd like to be a neurosurgeon. I didn't graduate high school, and I actually don't even speak English, but I'd love to go to Yale Medical School. It would be my pleasure. They're not going to accept you. Even if you're a brilliant human being, they're not going to accept you because there are certain parts of the process that you need to go through before you get to that. And we need to make sure that that proposal, that that plan is a realistic one where we can actually go through all the stages properly to bring ourselves to where we need to get to. That's the way we deal with our lives. Says the Maharal, the Rebona does not need time, does not need stages for things to unfold. HaKadosh can make something happen the moment he wants it to happen. In the beginning of Parshas Miketz, we are told Yosef is in the pit. Yosef's life looks like it's going to be over. Yosef looks like there's no hope for his future. Am I standing in the right place? I'm getting nervous. Hey. So Rashi says, What does it mean by him? Says Rashi. The Bonashalom decided, enough! Yosef has to come out. It is time for Yosef to shine and to rule over Mitzrayim. How long did that take from him being? Me'ashbos yarim beyond? How long was it from the time that he was in the depths of despair until he became the Moshe Alkal Ha'aretz? One second. He didn't need to go through any stages. No planning had to be done. But what do you mean? He doesn't know how to lead a country. He doesn't really know how to live in a palace. He doesn't know how to do anything. But when the Rebona decides something should happen, it will happen immediately. And therefore the Ma'aral says that's what is trying to be given over to us in the story of the Chippozom of both Mitzrayim and in Purim as well. That the Rebona made an incredible miracle happen. He doesn't need time. Go this moment because the Rebona Shalom decided now is the moment of your redemption and I don't need to figure out a plan of how I'm going to get millions of Jews out of Egypt all at the same time. And I don't need time to figure out how we're going to make everything happen exactly the way it should because you're dealing with the Rebona Shalom. That is the emphasis on the puzzle. That is the emphasis on the maharu and the story of Urim as well. Now I mention all of this because let's think for a moment about how this plays into our experience of the Geula that we hope and we look forward to in our times as well. So we turn to the words of the Mechilta de Rabbi Yishma. My time is up at 1 o'clock? Hard stop 1 o'clock? Okay. For those of you who just heard Bethlehem Price, she knows how to speak on double speed. I'm going to try to do the same. Okay. Mechilta de Rabbi Yishma turns us to a passage in the Nabi Yishaya. The Navi Yishaya describes a lot about the ultimate redemption. Listen to this pasuk, and it shouldn't surprise you. When it comes to the ultimate redemption, it is not going to be that experience that you had by Mitzrayim, and it's not going to be like the Purim story. When it comes to the Geulah HaAsida, to the ultimate redemption, not going to be so fast. Anyone feeling that? You ever wondered. Maybe it started in 1948. Maybe it started before that. But it's been a long time since 1948. Like, where's Mashiach? What happened to him? Did he get lost somewhere? Why is this so complicated? Why is it that on this occasion of redemption, lo b'chi pazonti why is it that the 239 chayal had to lose his life last night? Why is it that there are so many al who have lost their husbands? Why is it that there are so many hostages who are Shvuyim Why is it that so many of our friends have children who are prepared to give up their lives, and unfortunately so many of them already have? Why can't the Rebunoshim do this Bichy puzzle? Why don't you do the same thing that happened on the occasion of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and in the redemption by Mordecai Esther. I'm sorry for all those who are crying, I didn't mean to. Mm-hmm. But what is that all about? And says the matter is, mm-hmm. You may think that at the end of days, the Gula will come in that same fashion. Says the Navi, it's not the way it works. Why is that? Why? And I believe the answer is, because this is a very different experience than all the others. I've been wondering, isn't it strange? The Israeli army was known as the most powerful army in the world until October 7th. They were known to be with the greatest intelligence until October 7th. All the systems seemed to have failed. How could it possibly be? Forgetting about I I don't know anything about wars, I don't know the answer to that, but how can it possibly be that a country that is so sophisticated, that is the tech king of the world, how is it possible that they are not prepared for 300,000 high to be called up and they don't have boots for them to wear? Anybody wonder this? How can it be that you don't have ceramic vests? to save the life of Echayel, it's unconscionable it makes no sense. There is no country in the world where that would happen. We are not a primitive people. We're dealing with a civilized country that has figured out how to have ingenuity for so many other things. How can this be? I don't know the answer, but to me it seems, maybe. What a privilege that the Rebona Shalom is giving us an opportunity to be partners in fighting this war. Did you ever think you can buy a ceramic vest that's going to save a soldier's life on the front lines? That's not something I can do. So to all of those sitting here in this room, you're not fighting on the front lines. Maybe you don't know how to. Maybe you're too afraid. But guess what? There are many Jews who are not afraid. And you have an important role to play in this guru. What a privilege that the Rebona Shalom has turned to Jews all over the world and said, this time, to get out of this exile, it's not going to be the key because I won't do it alone. I'm going to empower you to be a part of this process. And all of us have been doing everything that we can in so many different ways to be a part of this process. To some, it means they've given money. To others, it means they've advocated in Washington. To some, it means they're flying to Israel on missions. To some people, it means they're sending meals to Chayalim and they're buying vests and they're raising money for boots and everything everyone's doing. What a privilege! What a privilege! That the Rebona Shalom has turned to all of us and said, This time it's not because I want your involvement. I welcome your investment. I want you to be a part of it. And how fulfilling is that? When we know that the Rebona Shalom takes us seriously, empowers us, wants us to be a part of his process of redemption, can there be a more gratifying feeling in the world than that? Can there be anything in the world that makes us feel better than to know that the Rebona trusts us, that the Rebona Shalom relies on us, that the Rebona wants us to be a part of all that's going on? I can't think of a greater privilege than that. Than to realize that our Kurdish Baruch Hu has turned to all of us and said, "I want your contributions. This won't be really the Tikkun because I want all of you to be a part of this sacred story of the Jewish people." That's what makes it meaningful. We daven every day, "Tikab is Shofar Gadol Think about the words for a moment. "Tikab is Shofar Gadol If we daven that God should blow the big shofar and bring us our redemption it must be that there's also a small Shofar. So what is the small Shofar, what is the big Shofar? What are we referring to? Correct? So this is actually from the Nabi who describes the Shofar Gadol and And the Medrash asks, what is the Shofar Gadol, and what is the Shofar Kata? Counterintuitive, the Medrash says, the Shofar Gadol that is going to bring Chei is the Shofar Shal Avram Avinu by the Akedah, when he was about to sacrifice his own son. He turns out, having an animal there, he brings that as the carpet instead. That is the Shofar Gadol that will bring our redemption. So what is the Shofar Katan that will not bring our redemption? That is the Shofar that God himself blew on the occasion of Maimon Sinai When he gave the Jewish people the Torah, it says that there was a lot of noise. But he called our Shofar, Holech, and That's the shofar katan. That's the small, insignificant shofar. Don't pay too much attention to that, because that won't bring you redemption. You know what that means? What's the difference between those two shofars? On the occasion of Harsinai, we were passive participants. We did nothing. The Rebona Shalom came. He gave us the Torah. He communicated with us. When he left, it was over. Avraham Avinu's shofar is what highlights our contribution to what this relationship means. What brings our redemption is not the Shofar of Harsina. What will bring our redemption is the Shofar Gadol, showing all of the contributions that we are willing to make, All of the dedications that we are willing to give. All of the different components that we are willing to show this is valuable to us. We want to fight for this. And for every person it means fighting in a different way. But all of us have the ability to contribute and to fight in our own way. Let me just close with one meaningful poem that I got last week from an Almana in Eretz Yisrael who lost her husband on October 7th. She sent me a poem on Arab Shabbos, Pracious Truma. And this to me is one of the reasons I feel so guilty not living in Eretz Yisrael. Not just guilty, I feel I'm missing out. Because we don't think like this here. They just think differently than we do. Alabay, if only we were able to think this way. So you read the opening words in Parsh Truma. It sounds very simple, very straightforward. Torah says that after Hu instructed the Jewish people, everyone should give a contribution to the building of the Mishkan. I read that this year just like you read it this year, and it didn't really mean so much to me. I hope that will never be the same feeling you'll have after you hear this. And it's appropriate for these partios because even though we're past Parsha's Truma, in two weeks we're gonna have Ayakel and then Bikude, which remind us of the whole story, and it repeats everything over and over again. So what does a recent Almana October seventh, who has six children that she's now raising alone, who has been kicked out of her house since October seventh and living in a hotel? who now is going back to her community in the south, not because it's safe, but because the conditions in the hotel are unbearable for her community any longer. How does she see this possible? Here's what she says. Kama She writes very personally to HaKadosh Baruch, to God himself, and says, How many contributions have been given to you in the last four months? How many kind hearted Jews have you seen among the Jewish people all over the world? How many baalehem? How many wives have given over their husbands? All to rebuild the Orbe Sanhedesh. How many mothers and fathers have given over their young sons? Ahuvo shataru chaverim. How many friends have given over their loved ones? Kalos Shataru How many women who were engaged have given over the love of their life who they were planning to get married to? shloshen Baarba Od Lugula, hundred and thirty four individuals who have given themselves over in enemy territory who are still not back. Raglayim Nitramu, how many legs have been given? How many arms were given over, how many hands were sacrificed when they were trying to hold the doors closed of the safe rooms. How many courageous soldiers have been wounded, have given up their bodies, and then went back to give more of their bodies because they said it was not enough. How many How many great Jews around the world came together to tie tzitzis. How many thousands of pounds of flour? Kemach nitram le'alfe hamfrosh chal. How many Anshei haitak tarmu atzmam le'chak How many businessmen gave themselves, closed their businesses and went to do farming because that's what the Jewish people needed? How many Anshei zakah timi timimusam yachadim amshea rabbanut? How many members of Zaka and of the chief rabbinate have done their jobs. How many Sudot How many meals have been sent to the wives who are home alone waiting for their husbands to come back? How many iPhones were given the Patsua? How many guitars were played for Yisomim? How many checkbooks? Look, Ribona at how much of a truma we have given collectively for one purpose. The Yichuli From every Nadiv Lev. From every kind-hearted soul who believes they have something to contribute. We have contributed. Some more, some less. But as we're told, Every person has given L'Shem Shemai because they want ultimately to be there when we have the building of our Mishkan once again. So she turns to the Haftarah of Prakshish Truma. What is the story that we read in Prakshish Truma, the Haftarah? A very appropriate sequel to the Torah portion itself. When we read about Shlomo Amalek, who has the opportunity to build the Beis Hamidrash, And what happens after he gathers and galvanizes everyone to come together and build and contribute and do everything that was necessary? What happens after that? HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, If... All of this comes together and now it is built as the base HaMikdash is supposed to be. And you have contributions from all of those who were prepared to participate. Listen to the words, Malachim Aleph. Vishachanti ben v'lo I, the Rebam Shalom says, in response will reside, will rest my Shekinah among the Jewish people. Velo eezog asamim Yisrael, and I will never forsake the Jewish people. Michtadlim echol kocheno livnot lechabayit belybena. We are all trying our best to give whatever contributions we possibly can. V'lealeches achar hu kechal mishbatecha b'darken. We are trying to follow as best as we can. We ask of you, Achad Shvaru, traf, sraf trumosenu uresamos kalam chabez Yisrael. Gather all of those contributions of the Jewish people all over the world. mishkan mikdash the That is what we pray for. That is what we think about as we read these parashiyos, as we remind ourselves of ge'ulah s'israel, as we look forward to those days when we'll have the same experience, but it's not exactly the same. There was an experience of chippazam that the Jewish people had when they came out of Israel, when they had the experience of Mordechai and Esther, that is not the experience that we have today. But how meaningful it is, how painful, but how meaningful it is that the Rebona Shalom gives us the opportunity to be a part, as a community, to be a part of everything that this Lulah represents for us. And we ask HaKadosh Baruch Huar, to give us that same promise <speaking> in response. <Hebrew> Thank you so much for being here. These are the mechanchim and they and the mechanchos that are impacting the women here, the future of the women, mothers, wives, leaders of the Jewish people. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Just a couple notes.